0: Morning, church. So, um, there's a story of a recent expedition of a ship which came across what seemed to be a deserted island. And as this crew from the ship went ashore, somebody, somebody came out of the jungle to meet them. And this man was actually an English-speaking Westerner like them. They were told that the island was deserted, but evidently years prior, this fellow had been sailing and and found his way to this island after his boat sank. And he'd actually been living there for years. Well, no doubt the, the crew was astonished by this. And the man was really excited to show them all the stuff he had built over the years of of living there. So the first spot he took them to was his house, and he said, look, uh, this is the house that I built. And there was a beautiful fence and a garden around it. And as the crew looked around, they noticed other buildings. One of the crewmen said, well, what what building is that? And he said, oh, well, that's, yeah, that that building right there, that's my church. That's, uh, I built that, and and that's, that's where I go on Sundays. And then he noticed just just to the left, about 100 meters, was another building. And he said, well, well, what's that building? He said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) You know, sadly, um, this appears to be the attitude of some Christians today. They're cool with Jesus, just not the church thing. Some even go so far as to say that church isn't necessary. I don't need church, they'll say. I'm fine, just as long as I've got my Bible, a couple Christian friends to connect with, but when it comes to church, eh, I don't need some man-made institution to help me, thanks. Others may not be as hostile to church. They're they're happy to go in so far as, well, they like the music, of course. They like the way it makes them feel. They like the programs. They like the coffee. They might like the preaching. But hold on, Jesus founded the church. He purchased it with his own blood. He actually identifies himself with the church, saying it is the body of Christ. It is his church, it is his body. He loves the church and cherishes the church. So what is the church then? How do you recognize a true church? I mean, there's stacks of buildings here on the central coast that have the tag name to them, church, right? Are they real? Are they authentic? What's the foundation then of a church? And how much authority should the church have in our lives? How much should this church, how much authority should this church have in your life? Those are are some of the questions I want us to actually explore this morning. I wanna think, as we look at Matthew's gospel here again, I want us to think about the foundation of the church, the endurance of the church, and lastly, the authority of the church. So first, in verse 18, um, we will observe the church's foundation. Then we'll see the church's endurance. And finally, it's God-given authority. The foundation of the church, the endurance of the church, the authority of the church. That's where we're headed, let's pray. Gracious God, we come again as needy sinners who are distracted with a thousand things. And so, Lord, set our minds on your word. Enlighten our hearts. We pray this for Jesus' sake and his glory. Amen. So let's jump back into Matthew 16 again. That's where we picked up last week. Um, It's interesting, Jesus enters this area called Caesarea Philippi. Um, I've actually been there. There's a couple pictures, that that's not a picture. Um, but that's what it would have looked like. Um, yep, and that's what it looks like now, which is kinda cool. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a place that was filled with paganism. It's a place that uh, everywhere the disciples would have looked, there was idolatry going on. Which, it's fitting, right, for Jesus, because of that, him to say, oh, well you notice people worshiping the God of this and the God of that, well who do, you, who do people say that I am? Right, you have your ear to the ground, what's, what's the consensus, what's, what's the, uh, what are people saying about me? Yeah, let's pick up here in S- chapter 16, verse 13, and when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, there it was, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, uh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, another Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Yeah, those are all good, positive people. But did you notice Messiah's not in that list? And that's why he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Or depending on your translation there, it might say you are the Messiah, the son of the living, God. And Jesus says, wow, good on you, Peter. Man, you're a smart bloke. Boy, you, you, you puzzled that out. You, I knew picking you was the right choice because you sure are a, a, a real witty, sharp sort of bloke. No, that this declaration didn't come from Peter himself, did it? See the next verse? It didn't come from your own natural mental processing, Peter, but the supernatural work of God. You see that? And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't stop at this point, does he? He, he, he says, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But he doesn't say, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. And he goes, yeah, that's right. I was wondering where that, you know. And he says, okay, now that, now that everybody knows that, all, okay, all my inner circle here, now that everybody knows that, y- y'all good? You good? And he would have said y'all, right? he, and he said, so is, everybody, is everybody good here? Yeah, yeah, great, great. No, no, no. Jesus wants his people to understand the truth of who he is and his plan for how they're to conduct themselves, his in his church, you see, it's a lot of play on words here, though. I want you to see it. In essence, Jesus is saying, in verse 18, I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I know this is, not gonna, this is probably not going to shock anyone here, but I'm not a builder, I know, you see these hands? <laughs> not builder hands. Look at Dan's hands, too. We don't have builder hands, okay? I'm not a builder, but I, I know enough, just talking with my fellow builder friends, that when you lay a slab, it's, it's like critical, right? Like if the foundation is off, you're gonna have just a world of problems. Uh, now, I'm, I, may not, I may not be a builder, but I do know that this particular passage is in fact extremely debated. Let me ask you this: who or what is identified as the rock? And I don't, mean, I don't mean the actor. Okay, in verse 18, who or what is identified as the rock? Now, I'll give you some options, and then you get to take a vote. Okay, here we go. So, is the foundation rock Peter himself? Here we go, here's the options. That's option one. Is it Peter's faith, as in his confession of who Jesus is? Is it the 12 apostles? Is it Jesus? Now, so there's your four options. There's there's more that people have proposed, but let's start with the first one. Given the grammatical structure, the way it's written, and the play on words, some claim the most natural way to interpret this verse is to say that Peter himself is the rock. Others object, and they'll say, no, 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 no. It's not literally Peter. Rather, it's the declaration Peter makes about Jesus. Remember, he just said, you are the Christ. Still other people point to passages like Ephesians 2.20. Fair enough, which say the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Finally, we have people throughout church history who say, nah, the rock has to be Jesus. Even that hymn. Some of you would have sung this hymn in this church at some point, I'm assuming. Um, uh, what is it? Someone help me. F- no, no, no. That's a good one, though. <laughs> is Jesus Christ our Lord? Our sure foundation. Come on, don't you know hymns? Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you. That's coming from this. Site. Yeah, what is it? An Anglican hymn. Ah, d- d- yeah, I know. So, how does it start off, Joy? (laughs) Thank you. This church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Come on, you guys. Get familiar with some real songs. Well, I have to sing that next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to to come up here, Rob, and sing it, you can. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I, um, here's the deal. I suppose when you look at that list, Reinhardt, if you can throw it back up, I suppose there's truth really in all of those to an extent. I mean, the New Testament certainly uses all the metaphors mentioned. But let me ask you this. If you had to boil it down specifically to this exact passage in Matthew 16, I'm curious what you think. Who votes? Who votes for option A? Or one, I should say, that it's Peter. Show of hands. Dan, well done. <laughs> yeah, sh- sh- sh. Could it be, could it be the reason that you're not voting for Peter? I'm actually gonna make the argument I think it is Peter, but not Peter alone. But could it be that you have a Protestant idea that says, well, if it's Peter, therefore there must be a succession of popes after Peter, if you're familiar with what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And therefore it can't be Peter. Maybe, maybe, so you have a presupposition, you go into the text. All right, challenge number one. Who says, um, I think this is probably gonna be the second one, who says it's Peter's confession? Okay, okay, good. Who says it's the 12 apostles? Yeah, good, say that, yeah, okay. Who says it's Jesus? Yeah, 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 okay. Now, I, I, I forced you into like one, but I, I, I admit that, but I think it's options A or one and two. In other words, Jesus builds his church on both Peter and Peter's confession. Now, before you accuse me of being a priest and run out of here and all these things, allow me to explain why I think that. Okay, the first one, I think it is because the plain sense of the text seems to point towards Peter. That is, Peter himself, in his historical role, is the foundational rock. Did he not just receive the personal name, Rock, and then Jesus declares, on this rock, I'll build my church? Peter is singled out here, perhaps as first among equals because he is the first to rightly confess Jesus' true identity. And he's the apostle whom much of the church's foundation will be built starting in Acts 2. And if you keep reading in the book of Acts, you can see how Jesus is building his church and how Peter played a central role in it. That said, I don't think, I don't think This implies Peter is on some higher level or that he's the first pope or any of that other stuff. The Catholic Church teaches that Peter was given a special authority, which is now passed down to a series of church leaders. But all you have to do, all you have to do is just read, as Kim did a great job reading for us, is just read a few verses later and then it's not like Peter just receives this title and then he just becomes this infallible pope. I mean, get behind (laughs) the Satan, right? Or just keep reading the book of Acts. I said he has a crucial role in Acts, but he's also, if you remember in Acts, he's accountable to the church in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? He goes to Cornelius' house, has to go, he has to report these things to the church in Jerusalem. Plus, at one stage, Peter has a massive blunder. He doesn't want to have lunch with Gentiles. And and what happens? He gets rebuked by Paul for it. You see, Peter's authority is completely tied to Jesus' authority as the Christ. That's why the rock here cannot be Peter alone, it is also the declaration Peter makes. The Lord builds his church on both Peter and Peter's confession. You remember how Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes on to declare what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a great confession. And Jesus says, I will build my church on that. I will build my church on that confession. You understand, this is the confession upon which the church is built, that the living God has revealed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the foundational slab of the church. Massive. Do you see how critical that is? Because not every place that claims to be a church is by any means a church. It needs to have the right foundation, you see. John MacArthur helpfully puts it this way. He says, listen to this. The church is not a group of people who gather together to hear a motivational speech. Uh, The church is not a group of people who are seeking, seeking help for their addictions. The church is not a collection of folks who want to feel spiritual. It is not an assembly of those who want to somehow mindlessly go through religious ritual thinking and somehow this does them good. It is, a, it is an assembly of people who from the heart have made a great confession. And that great confession is that there's a living God who has manifested himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the Holy One of God and the only one who through whom we can have eternal life. It's a great quote. Friends, that is the very foundation of the church. But what about the endurance of the church? What about the endurance of the church? Well, that's given in the same verse here in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build, notice the language here Jesus uses, it's very personal, notice my church. It's his, he will build it, you see that? I will my church, and notice, and because Jesus is the chief architect, nothing or no one can destroy it, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, depending on your Bible translation there, you might have the gates of hell, or you might have the gates of Hades. In the first century, Hades was thought of not simply as a place for dead people, but more of an underworld populated with the ungodly and demonic forces. Jesus refers to this dreadful spot and then uses a word here that's very interesting. It's a defensive word. It has a particular connotation in the Old Testament. It's the word prevail. You see that? Prevail. Uh, You might remember when Jesus was facing his trial. When the Lord is on trial, there's a big crowd, but there's sort of two groups or or two sections, if you like, in the crowd. There were some who were shouting, release him, release him. And there were others yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Luke tells us in his gospel that this second group prevailed. Hear that? Prevailed. It appears that this word prevail is, is set within the context of hostility. So so do you see what Jesus is promising here? Even the full fury of demonic powers cannot put an end to my church. Nothing will have the strength or capability to defeat it. The church of Jesus Christ will endure to the end. What a passage. Amazing. Some take this as an offensive, like, as in, like, gates were used as sort of an offense rather than a defense. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Although I love the way that J.C. Ryle puts it. He takes it more as the defensive interpretation here, meaning that whatever onslaught the world throws at the church, it'll never snuff it out. Listen to this quote by J.C. Ryle. He says, Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the neroes have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go into their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. What a passage. The Church will endure until the end, my friends, of the Lord Jesus. It is interesting here, though, I do want to say this. As encouraging as that is, I do think in this passage, here in Matthew 16, it's referring to what's called the universal church. I don't think that every local church can cling to this as a promise. I really, I think that would be a misuse of this text. So in other words, will Wyoming Church of Christ continue to exist? In God's grace, yes. And I would argue insofar as that we have a sure and steady foundation, there are stacks of churches, and this always happens, if you study church history by the way, which you can go to the equipped class and do so at 8.30 in the morning, every Sunday but often when you see churches that go off the rails theologically, in their attempt to kind of be relevant to the culture, almost always give it a decade or two or three and you see about eight people in that building falling apart, they're usually elderly people, nothing wrong with that, but where are all the people gone? Because why? Well, they've they've taken this book, you see, and they said, ah, well, you know, we don't really believe it, all oh, things like, you know, uh, ethical things like sexuality or, or whatever it might be. Ah, well, see, we're going to twist it, we're going to rip that page out, and what happens? They're, they're le- they're, there's a whole denomination, I won't name it, but here in Australia, that they're a sinking ship. They're a sinking ship because they, they've, they've chucked this out, and in an attempt to be relevant, and guess what? No one's, no one's, no one's going to think you're cool when you've got no authority at the end of the day, you see, no one's going to follow you because you've got no Christ. You've, you've got a toothless Messiah, really. And, and so you, you've ripped, you shredded the atonement, you shredded the authority of the Bible, you shredded the ideas of sexuality, and, and what are you left with? Ten people or or less in a dying church in a di- like a dilapidated building. That's my rant for the morning. But that has happened again and again. And and it will continue to happen. And I would argue this, any church that is committed to God's word, the Lord can and typically does sustain that church insofar as they sit under the authority of his word. That's it. So I say that because I think there's a naivete if I can be so bold as to say that, that there's this naive thinking among Christians that, oh, well, Jesus said he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Yep, and local churches close all over the place, all the time. What we have, friends, the hope of this church is that we are gonna be a people who are committed to Christ who sit under his word and trust him that he is sovereign to carry this church or to close it, you see? And I'm encouraged because I trust in a good, sovereign God. And I wanna be a part of a church that sits under the authority of God's word. How about you? Yeah. If you don't, there's plenty of churches I can point you to that don't. I'm serious. So, the foundation of the church, the endurance of the church, lastly, the authority of the church. The authority of the church. What do you mean, authority of the church? I'm a free individual. This is a democracy. Okay, let's go to, where am I getting this from? Let's go to chapter 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Honestly, guys, I could spend all morning with you giving you the various interpretations of how this is... (laughs) (laughs) how this has been read and interpreted, it would blow your mind, it would spend an hour. From the oversimplified to the bizarre that's out there. What exactly are these keys that Jesus is talking about? What's the object that is bound and loosed? right? This is peculiar language. But let's try to stick with the metaphors. I think the passage is about entering the church and maintaining the church. Entering and maintaining. What do I mean by entering? People enter God's kingdom through the gospel, and the church is given authority to proclaim that message of the gospel. When any local church proclaims the gospel, it is done under Jesus' authority. That is, his authority to save and to judge sinners, meaning we can say to anyone in the world, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you will be set free from sin forever and condemnation. That is a guarantee based on the authority of Christ in his word. At the same time, we can also say if you don't turn From your sin and trust in Jesus. You are bound to your sin, and its payment for all eternity is hell. You see, authority has been entrusted to us as a church to proclaim the message. We speak with the authority of Christ. Now, let's keep sticking with these metaphors here. So he says, We're given the keys. It's really interesting there. If you're looking at you, given the keys, this is probably where people get that little caricature of Peter at the pearly gates, right? Because he's you know he's he's talking initially to Peter there. Um, But what does a key do? It it, it, well, it does something, right? What are keys used for? It's they open a door, right, and or they can lock a door that allows or permits people from entering. The keys of the kingdom have been entrusted to us to proclaim the message to. Open the door for salvation. Incredible. Do you understand? When you, even in a postmodern pluralistic age like we live in, when you share the gospel with someone, you're not standing on your own two feet. You're not standing on your own authority to do so. It's Christ and His authority. So you, you don't need to have this. Oh well, you know, who am I to say? That's right. Who are you to say? Of course. You're not you're you're just the, you're just the spokesman for Jesus, you see. Jesus has the one who has authority. I, I was surfing in the water with someone a few uh, last week and and they said, um, oh, a friend of mine said, am I going to am I going uh, go to I Guess you think I'm going to go to hell. And I think the better question is, well, you know, you, you wanna unpack that with him. Why, why do you think that? But ultimately, I, I, don't, I don't have the authority to say, yeah, you're going to hell. But I do when I point to Christ and say, this is what Jesus said, he's the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father but through him. So yeah, you reject Jesus. Jesus said you're either for me or against me. This is, this is my, not my words. I spoke at a funeral this last week and I was pretty clear on the gospel and I had people absolutely glaring at me. Several of them. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care at all. It's not my words. I I sit under the authority of Jesus. You see? And I can look them in the eye and say, look, you can be forgiven and saved if you turn to Christ. By his word, his authority, not mine. So, that's part of this idea of binding and loosing. But how else is it used? Well, it's used to maintain our life together. Now, where am I getting that? Well, just turn a few pages over to Matthew 18. This same phrase of binding and loosing is used again, only, it's not just about opening the door, it's actually about maintaining life together as a body. It's, It's this thing called dare I say it, church discipline. But the same language is used. Look at this. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, At this point, Jesus explains that what are the churches to do? You know, if it doesn't listen, take two or three others along, and if if this fellow or this lady still doesn't listen, well, he explains that the church has a license, actually, to discipline. In other words, the authority or keys mentioned back in 16 are put to use by a local congregation. How? Well, Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning he's an unregenerate person, you see? He's not converted. Now, here's what's interesting. We we typically just leave it off there and say, whoa, that's, man, I'm not touching that. Glad no churches do that around here. That's full on. But then Jesus, notice, picks up the same language from Matthew 16 about binding and loosing. Notice, truly I say to you, same breath, verse 18, same breath, same sentence. We, we, we have it all in, you know, numbers in our English Bibles, but this is, it doesn't look like that way in the originals, right? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see, the authority that the church exercises is in fact God's authority. It's amazing. In other words, and this is why this is massive, this is why church discipline is so, so, so important, is because we have a propensity as sinners to be self-deceived. We have a propensity to think so highly of ourselves, and I've, I've used this illustration before, it's like when you go to a cafe, you know, and, and if you get a scone with some whipped cream and you've got some here, and someone can goes, hey, you got some on your face, right? Sin can be like that. We can be so deceived and thinking that we don't, we don't see it. And the church in love for the restoration of a brother or sister comes around and says, you've got sin in your life, you need to change. But here's the deal. Heaven's already made that declaration on them. Whatever you bind on earth, it's already happened in heaven. You see? So, I don't know about you, but I want to be pretty consistent with what God has already decided on that individual. Does that make sense? If heaven's already make, made a declaration on that person, and we as a church, out of quote, love, turn a blind eye to that person's sin, do you see who we're out of sync with? Heaven itself. Now, some people at this point go, whoa, 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 whoa. Some people, Jesus seems to respond to anyone who might question whether a church should have such authority, right? And so he matches their decision that they've come to, this local church, with heaven itself, and look at it again. Truly I say to you, verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That doesn't mean when people don't show up for the prayer meeting, we quote this verse. Oh, it's okay, he says he's here. In the difficulty of church discipline, Christ is present with us because he cares about the holiness of his bride. When two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them in their midst. (laughs) Church discipline is tough. The goal is to see someone restored. For there are two or three in my name, there I am among them, Jesus says. You see, the authority that the church exercises at the end of the day is God's authority. Do You understand? But this entails something, doesn't it? <laughs> How can you practice this? By the way, do you know if there are many churches that do this? There's not heaps. In other words, in order to properly do this, you need to first define what a church and who the church is. You need to properly be able to draw a line in the sand, a circle on the whiteboard. And say, this is the church. These are the regenerate people, you see. And as we come together as a church, now we have that authority. Because the church represents Christ as an ambassador. You know, if you think about it, it's interesting here in this passage, uh, both in Matthew 16 as well as Matthew 18, Jesus uses the word ecclesia or church, right? The first one, I reckon, is universal, as I said. Clearly this next one is particular to a local church. Even the authority that's given initially, remember it's, you know, first it's Peter, I'll give you the keys, etc. But then you see it in 18, where does the authority go? It doesn't just stay with the apostles. It doesn't stay embedded in some pope who wears the fisherman's shoes or, or whatever it might be, right? No, it's passed on who has the authority? The local church. Amazing. Now, There's a whole lot to think about here, massive. You see, I don't know about you, but I wanna be a part of a church that has a sure and steady foundation. I wanna be a a church that I'm seeing because of our commitment to Christ is enduring. But there's a whole lot of questions here about what it means for the church to have authority and what that looks like. And if heaven's already made its decision and heaven's already done, I wanna be in sync with that. How about you? That doesn't mean that these things are easy, friends. And I'm thrilled, and God's providence, by the way, as you know, we've been talking about membership, which I think is so, so airtight, it's so clear in so many passages, this being one of them, is I'm thrilled that we're moving in this direction where we can have clarity on who the regenerate church here is and be able to live these things out together. I mean, Jesus is so... Uh, You know, I was thinking about this. We have passages from Paul about the qualifications of elders and deacons, and we have things in the epistles, but when it comes to, like, Jesus and what he speaks about the church, think about this. This is kind of all we've got from the lips of Jesus. Think about that. Yes, I know that the New Testament's inspired and the epistles and all that stuff, but if Jesus were to return right now, how are you going on, on this bit? I want to be faithful, don't you? And we can be, and we're moving in that direction, and I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled about it. And we can trust the Lord as we move in that direction that it, it's his authority, it's his church. Jesus is the senior pastor here. He's the chief shepherd. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited, guys. I, I've been just having lots of great questions. Some of you Still have questions, and that's fantastic. I would, here's a book that, if you, I'll leave it up here, I've con- I continue to pass out books, but this is called The Rule of Love, How the Local Church, some of you have read this, How the Local Church Should Reflect God's Love, and listen, authority. Massively important. But I'd encourage you, as you process these things, ask yourself, are you coming to conclusions based on scripture, or is it the way that you feel? You see? Or is it, I don't like this, well why not? just don't like the way it feels. Well... What does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? Remember, that's what—that's the kind of church we want to be that sits under the Scriptures. Amen. I'm—I'm I'm, I'm throwing out of my socks. This is not going to stay up, is it? There we go. It'll fall when I pray and distract everybody here. It's up here if you—it's it, up here if you want it. So, um, look, love to continue to chat about these. A lot of man, there could have been. There's so much more that can be said about this. But when we get into Matthew 18, we'll, we'll we'll unpack it more and more. Um. How about we pray? Lord, we, um, again, thank you for the truth of your word and whew, there is a lot there that's it's sure not easy to swallow, but yet, Lord, you've laid it out and we pray that we'd be a church that sits under the authority of your word, that we wouldn't base our decisions on, on how we feel, but Lord, be faithful to what you've laid out for us in your, in your word. We pray that we continue to be a church that that does that, that submits to the truth of your word. And Lord, we we ask now that as we reflect upon your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, Lord, we know that we don't want to do this in a way that's lighthearted or jovial, but in a way that it, it has gravity to it. So we pray that you would cause our hearts and our minds to examine ourselves, to focus on the Lord Jesus and the work that he has done for us. And it's in his name we pray.